Welcome to the Growing Rural Podcast, where we focus on all things rural in South Carolina. We will discuss topics on healthcare, economy, education, and the unique culture that is our rural state. This podcast is supported by the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Please join us for today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Growing Rural Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Kevin Bennett. Today we have with us Dr. Brittany Rainwater. Dr. Rainwater is a clinical psychologist who works in the McLeod Family Medicine Center in Florence, South Carolina. Dr. Rainwater, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell us about uh, yourself, where you came from, and how you ended up doing what you're doing today. Yeah, so I am an Oklahoma native who married a Southern boy, and that's what landed me here in South Carolina. But I did my graduate training in Virginia Beach. Hmm. Went to a generalist um, clinical psychology program, but pretty early on began gearing my experiences more towards the world of health psychology, neuropsychology, and primary care psychology. Um, And then I was able to complete my residency here in Columbia at the Dorn VA Center mm, okay. and do a year focused on primary care psychology. Okay. I took my first job within the VA. I went to the Florence Seabock, um, where my in-laws all live, um, and worked for about a year there with the veterans and really, really enjoyed working with veterans. It's such a kind of different and unique population that was fun to do. And for listeners that don't know, a CBOC is a... Community-based outpatient clinic. Right. So that's the primary care clinic for the veterans that are distributed around. So it's primary care and mental health treatment. And it has both what we call primary care psychology or integrated behavioral health, Mm -hmm. along with specialty mental health services. A psychologist in Florence who I knew actually approached me one day and asked to get coffee because there was something she wanted to talk about. And we went and talked, and she said that she worked as faculty for the Family Medicine Residency Program, Mm -hmm. and she was being actively recruited to another position, but had so much angst about leaving, and would I be interested in filling her shoes? Interesting, yeah. And I said, what do you do again? Like, I had no clue. Right. Um... So without really having any sense of what a job in a family medicine program looks like or Mm -hmm. really even that it existed, I kind of got pulled into that position. So I am part of the core faculty for the program in Mm -hmm. Florence, and I'm essentially responsible for training the residents who are there for three years after their medical school training in all things mental health and communication skills and I oversee our residency wellness programs and that sort of thing and then traditionally family medicine residencies don't do that right so per ACGME which is the accrediting body Mm -hmm. for family medicine programs there does have to be an identified faculty member who is responsible for behavioral health training. Okay. But that's really, really broad. It right. doesn't have to be a person from a specific discipline. Like a trained clinical psychologist, for example. Right. It doesn't even have to be a full-time faculty. So a lot of times it's 
a clinical social worker Mm -hmm. or a licensed professional counselor or a psychologist. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not a unicorn by any means, but a lot of programs do hire um, a mid-level clinical behaviorist. It's rare enough that I had never heard of it of that position in graduate school. Right, yeah. So it is on the tail, but not unheard of. Yes. Right. So how is that different? I mean, you mentioned primary care psychology. How how is that different than what most people would think of psychology or psychiatric practice or mental health treatment? So the difference is that it has this really integrated focus where the mental health or behavioral health services are embedded into the primary care setting okay and it's not just a matter of being Mm co-located it's not just a primary care office hires a psychologist or a counselor to work in their office and refer their patients to i mean that's also good but it's just not quite the same there's a much closer level of integration where it's meant to be a you know, patient-centered, team-based model mm-hmm. where, you know, the physician, the behaviorist, I'll use as kind of a broad term, mm-hmm. um, and the patient are all on the same team working towards the same goal using the same treatment plan. And, of course, they address somewhat different things and, sure. and some of the same things. Sure. But it's really team-focused. It is generally a... Um, model of care that is shorter um, shorter term so individual appointments might be 30 minutes instead of 45 50 or 60 minutes like okay. in specialty mental health okay. and they might be every other week or once a month instead mm-hmm. of weekly um, and it might be you know 5 to 12 appointments you know so it's just on a a briefer level. And the idea is that you're able to identify a lot more people who are having some behavioral or mental health concern Mm -hmm. and address it much earlier on. So it's because you're part of that team. So a family medicine doc might notice something and then you're right there already to to address the issue. Frankly, most people wait until things are really bad before they call, you know, the private practice psychologist. Right. Um, but they're a little bit more receptive to just going to the room next door or down the hall right. to talk to somebody. And I, and I would guess theoretically, since you're on faculty there, you would have an influence other, over other faculty and the residents that they would be more receptive and more aware and maybe intervene earlier. Do you feel like that's part of your experience? Yeah. So part of my um, kind of setup there and just my sort of I don't know, philosophy of engagement with the residents Mm -hmm. is I frequently talk about how I'm generally available. And of course, I'm not always available because I'm in lots of meetings and whatever else. But I want them to come and grab me if they're struggling with a patient or send Mm -hmm. me a text message or, you know, do a sort of curbside consultation or Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, And just the fact of my presence and availability and just you know making it easy to talk about situations makes them a bit more I think aware in the moment 
of when they need to be addressing something Mm -hmm. or how to do it. They have Mm -hmm. sort of a security blanket. Right. So that's not just, oh, this might be a problem, but I'm not equipped. And so they might not address it. Now they know that they can. And so that might raise to the level of awareness. Right. And our faculty are the same way. Sure. You know, they have a patient that they're just not sure how to move forward or where they need to refer them or whatever it is, then Mm -hmm. they'll come and grab me and talk with me like the residents do. Great. Right. So what, how would that be different? Like from a patient perspective, if you're a patient in the family medicine center there and you're seeing, you know, even one of the attendings, one of the faculty physicians, how might that look different than if they were somewhere else? One of the things that we try to emphasize really strongly is the use of warm handoffs. Hmm. So all that term means is that, you know, if a patient is talking about a struggle with depression or anxiety or insomnia or whatever, instead of saying, hey, I'd really like to refer you to somebody and you're going to get a phone call within the next right. week or whatever, they just say, you know, we have somebody here who could come and talk to you today. Do you mind if I just shoot him a text? And yeah, that way you have this very warm and relational transfer right. i shouldn't say transfer of services because they're not leaving right. that but um but it's more continuous and direct yes. right yes and it helps with the natural anxiety of going to talk to somebody about something that's difficult to talk about right. Right. who's a stranger and you know yeah, that's in addition to all of the stigma of mental health services right. and, and things like that. So we get to go into the exam room and meet the patient with their physician who they know and trust mm-hmm. in that same room. And then we walk them back to where our therapy room, I say our because it's me and my colleague who's a clinical social worker. Okay. Her name is Lynn. She's okay. wonderful. So right. me or Lynn will go mm-hmm. and we walk them back and we introduce them to our office manager and show them the room. And it's a lot less intimidating that way so right. that when they are coming back to CS, it feels still like home base. Right. And they've established a connection with you. Right. Right. So why, why do you think that these kinds of things are rare. Why isn't behavioral mental health more integrated? You keep using the word integrated. Why has that not happened in the past with physical health or other, even dental or any, any other issues? Why why that firewall there? Because it's new. Yeah. I mean, it's not incredibly new now. The VA has been doing it for a long time. Right, right. Um, but it's not the traditional way that things go and it does require a sort of system-wide change to the flow of things. Mm-hmm. Um, while the physicians really like it and value it, they do have to engage in a couple of extra steps. Right. You know? Um, and if they are feeling really busy they're running behind it's hard to wait in the room while somebody else gets their things together and comes down the hall of course we try to be quick but it's it's just a bit of a different setup yeah and frankly i think that the billing structure is so different for Mm -hmm. behavioral health that it's intimidating to administrative staff and physicians alike because at the end of the day it does have to work from a financial standpoint. Right. 
Um, and, and I was curious about that as well. I was like, this sounds wonderful, but you know, top of mind is, well, how do you pay for it? How does, how does that work and make your administrators happy and make McLeod, you know, health system happy? Yeah. The million dollar question, right? It's the million dollar question. So every practice does that a little bit differently and it does depend on the specific model mm-hmm. of integrated care that you're using. Um, hopefully later on we'll talk about what we're doing, which is called collaborative care. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you're doing a behavioral health service, all of those are billable appointments. Um, mm-hmm. Not as much as a medical service, right. but it's enough to, to pay for. I don't know if every practice would profit from it, but because you get better patient outcomes, people who are doing it see that as worthwhile. Right, right. And it's kind of that value add. Right. Which I think the more that we move in that direction of this value-based care, Mm -hmm. the more pressure that will put on systems to create some other ways to make sure that their patients mental health needs are cared for because i would assume that you've seen this frequently that those mental health needs interfere with their chronic conditions with their just everything else right and taking care of that would be very helpful for your diabetic control right right it's very cyclical right um it seems like these things go hand in hand but even things that you wouldn't necessarily automatically think of as related um, like diabetes. Mm-hmm. There's much higher rates of depression among people who have diabetes. Right. Um, other things are more obvious, like chronic pain. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of expect if you're dealing with chronic pain for years and years, you would be more susceptible to developing depression too because right. it's really hard to have chronic pain for years and years. For any period of time. Really. Right. Yeah. But, you know, cardiovascular diseases mm-hmm. and lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, come with an increased prevalence of mental health. And it's kind of a, almost a chicken and egg kind of thing, right? Because, you know, I, you know, personal experiences with people with depression and mm-hmm. or anxiety, that changes their eating habits, which mm-hmm. could lead to diabetes, hypertension, and which could lead to worsening depression and anxiety, right? But right. which one occurs first is hard to say, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's impossible. Well, I shouldn't say impossible, but it's very difficult mm-hmm. to convince a person whose depression or anxiety are playing into those health behaviors to change just based on the the medical data. I had a patient Mm -hmm. referred to me a couple of months ago who was pretty far along in a pregnancy and had type two diabetes, not Mm -hmm. just gestational, but you know, pre-existing. And she was so anxious about the health of the baby. Um, And, you know, she had a a pre-existing kind of generalized anxiety that was now kind of focused on this. Sure. And she was not eating right to take care of herself or the baby. Mm -hmm. So her anxiety about the health of the baby was hurting the health of the baby and herself. Got into this vicious cycle, right? Right. So it was this kind of, you know, thing that just kept going on and on and her medical providers just didn't know how to address that any more than what they had already tried by educating her and and being warm and all of that sort of thing um so i had the opportunity to talk with her and you know as in 
many, many situations, the symptom itself wasn't the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, there are all of these things in her life that were just out of order, mm -hmm. unhealthy it's relationships. The manifestation of and, everything else, right? Right. And so this was sort of the outcome, but it was all these other things that we needed right. to work on to get this in a better place. Right. Um, which those things aren't going to come up very much in her medical appointment. And right. even if they do, are they equipped to do anything about it? Right. Do they right. even have the time and they don't have the training just right. because that's not what their specialty right. is. But someone like yourself and your social worker colleague right. have those resources and tools to handle that. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. So circling back to what you said earlier about the collaborative care model, talk, mm -hmm. uh, talk to us about that and what you've been doing over the past, I guess, couple, three years getting close to it yeah two so and a half or so i think 2018 we started working with yeah. you all on this yeah so tell us about what you're doing with that and trying to develop this model of care yeah so my overarching goal was just to try to establish some form of integrated behavioral health within the family medicine center mm -hmm. um you know i see patients but like the other core faculty members i essentially have a day's worth of patient care in a given week mm -hmm. um, where you're seeing patients face to face right. right because the main part of my job is training the physicians mm -hmm. um and as a um you know praise to the program they do not have productivity requirements for me I don't have to sort of earn my keep. Right, which is not it's not typical. Right. right. And that's because they really value the educational component. Right. Um, but, of course, I am expected to see patients, thankfully, because I would hate not to. I right. love patient still care. still a passion of yours. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, they had me, but that was so, um, you know, I had such a small caseload. And we had such a huge need for behavioral health care mm -hmm. in our clinic. And so we really wanted to get something set up and have the opportunity through working with you guys to do that. So the model that we have been using is a specific type of integrated behavioral health called collaborative care. Mm -hmm. And collaborative care is a model that was developed by the University of Washington. They have this, it's called the Ames Center, mm -hmm. um, that's developed and promoted and researched this. And it's a really, really cool model. You have the all the aspects of integrated behavioral health that we've already talked about with a couple of things sort of added on. Mm -hmm. One of those things is a sort of a population health aspect okay. where you have a registry of all of the patients who are in the program. Mm. And whenever they come in or during kind of phone updates or whatever, mm. you're on a regular basis screening them for depression and anxiety symptoms so that you Just have proactively without them exactly. Asking for it. Okay. Exactly. I mean, there's a depression screening policy in the center, so sure. everybody, you know, on some frequency is screened. But once you're in the collaborative care program, you get screened every two weeks to every month. Oh, okay. And that gives us a really good way just to track symptom improvement right. or lack thereof, or development, I guess, too. Or development, which I you've probably seen a good bit of over the past eighteen right. COVID months, right? Right. Yeah. 
Um, so you're able to take sort of a, a population view of the people enrolled in the program. So that's one added on aspect. Sure. And the other is a psychiatric consultant. Okay. So the psychiatrist in the program is not providing direct patient care. So it's a very non-traditional psychiatric Mm -hmm. model. Instead, what they're doing is they're doing consultation with the what's called behavioral health care manager. Okay. And in our program, that's Lynn. Okay, your social Um, worker. Our social worker. It can be a social worker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and she's not a social worker who helps with transportation and housing and medication. That's she's clinically focused. So she's like a counselor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but it doesn't have to be a social worker. It could be a licensed professional counselor, a psychologist, whatever. Right. Um, So that role is called the care manager. So the care manager once a week meets with the psychiatrist and they Mm -hmm. talk about any new patient in the program and any patient who just isn't getting better or is getting worse or something like that Mm -hmm. or has brought up concerns. And through their discussion, they formulate recommendations. And the psychiatrist sends through the EMR Mm -hmm. recommendations back to the patient's primary physician. Okay. So So it's it's like an upper level review, proactive care planning. Yeah. And then feeding it back to the medical provider. Right. And then the care manager, Lynn, of course, is also able to provide, um, you know, evidence-based behavioral health interventions, Mm -hmm. short-term counseling, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Right. So any individual patient in this program has these sort of wraparound behavioral health services where they get the benefit of their physician, Mm -hmm. a counselor, a psychiatrist who they will probably never meet, but is involved in their care. And like in many places, that is huge in Florence. It's really, really hard to get a patient connected with a psychiatrist. There's just so few, and then most of them don't take Medicaid. And, you know, I mean, it's a problem everywhere, right? Right, right. So, so what's what's been the provider's view on that? How, how accepting have they been of that? It's almost like they're taking orders from someone else. They love it. Okay, that's they great. Love it. Right. So, a they can decide not to follow the recommendation. Sure. It right. is. It's a pure recommendation. It is a pure recommendation. Yeah. Um, I tell them because they are in training that if they're not going to take the recommendation they do need to discuss that with their attending okay right like the, re- the reasons why and thought yeah process, and they right. need to document that right 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 but maybe they know something about the patient that the psychiatrist doesn't know right or maybe they bring up this medication change and the patient's like oh i've tried that before right and we had no way of you knowing that know or that. whatever you know yeah they so know there's valid reasons not to take the yeah yeah right i don't think any of them have the attitude of whatever i'm not gonna do that right and i really think that this is extremely well suited for a residency program Mm -hmm. not that it isn't for another setting but while it's really good for the patients it's also really good from an education standpoint right because I mean, just the numbers of people that they're taking care of that have a behavioral health concern 
is pretty high, right? So high. And they don't get very much training on mm-hmm. use of psychotropics and all that stuff in medical school, but they are expected to do it as soon as they get out. And there's often a fair amount of discomfort with that. Right. And they want to be good at it. Right. You know, it's just a lack of exposure and training. Right? Exactly. So, and it's relatively easy to get a inpatient psychiatry rotation. Mm-hmm. But that's a different. It's a different thing. Ball of wax, right? Yeah. Right. It's. I mean, it's helpful. It's good for them to see that level of acuity. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily always apply to what they're seeing in the office. Generalized anxiety and depressions aren't showing up on the inpatient side. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's what they really need to be right. good at. So, our psychiatrist who works with us, she not only puts in recommendations, but she also puts in kind of educational blurbs about okay. whatever she's recommending. If mm-hmm. she's talking about a medication that she thinks should be started, she gives a lot of information about that medication. And it's not just, hey, start this. It's here are some, you know, dosing aspects to consider and this is how you titrate this medication and these are red flags to look for i mean it's a lot of good information but really succinct Mm -hmm. so the residents feel like they're learning a lot from this in addition to being able to take care of their patient right which is very powerful because they're going to graduate residency and go out practice medicine somewhere and they may not have that resource right exactly so hopefully they're better equipped to do that i mean my dream is that all of them will love it so much that they fight tooth and nail to get the same thing in their practice right right? but that's not the reality and i want them to at least learn enough that if they don't have that they have some good experiences under their belt to guide them mm-hmm. and really know when they truly do need to refer. So here at the Center for uh, Rural and Primary Healthcare, we've been supporting this work uh, to set up this collaborative care model. But I think most people would look at that and, be, and say, well, why are you supporting a practice in Florence? Aren't you a rural center? And, you know, they'll point to our primary healthcare part of our name as well. But you know, Florence isn't typically rural, but, you know, I'm curious how many of your patients come from the rural communities that surround you and come in because that's the only place they can get to. Has that been the case that you've seen so far? So McLeod Health is situated in Florence, but it serves such a large region of the PD Mm -hmm. area. So we do have patients both for our outpatient centers and, of course, the inpatient hospital that right. come from all the surrounding area. So, right. you know, I have patients from Effingham and Timminsville and Nichols and Aner and, you know, all these different surrounding yeah. areas. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's the majority, but I would say a good estimate would be somewhere in the 30% range. Of your patients are from rural, mm-hmm. which probably represents a, you know, Aner is not very big, so it might be half of the patient base coming in there. Right. Right. Because right. where else would they go? They might travel to Charleston or uh, Grand Strand, I maybe. Know. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a, there's not a lot of options out there, right? I used to work with this um, adolescent patient from Aner. And she was so funny because she would always bring like her three best friends 
with mm. her. I never met them, but they would sit in the car oh, wow. during our session and then yeah. they would go to Target or whatever. Because uh, they <laughs> so came to the city, right? Yeah. It's like this outing. Right. I thought that was funny. That is, that is cool. <laughs> so, and we've been discussing with you in the center about trying to expand this model to more rural locations, right? Getting it more closer out there to the edges, right? That's right. So we have developed a rural track to our residency program. Mm -hmm. And we have a group of residents in Shira mm -hmm. and in Clarendon. And those are definitely not urban centers. No, no. Mm -hmm. So those two primary care centers serve Chesterfield, Marlboro, Clarendon, and Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. And those are areas of our state that have a lot of unique needs. Mm -hmm. um, I have a few statistics on those areas that I'd like to share with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. So one in five people in Chesterfield and Marlboro County report experiencing 14 or more poor mental health days per month. Which and is almost half, if you think about it that way. Yeah. And those two counties are tied for the worst, second worst rate on, in the state on this measure. So mm -hmm. that is a CDC measure that has been dubbed, it's just called frequent mental distress. Right. And so that's tracked in right. all these counties. Um, and in Clarendon and Williamsburg, it's a little better, but not much at all. Still 17% mm -hmm. of the residents in those counties report many. the same thing. Yeah. And those two counties are tied for being the sixth worst um, in terms of their rates on that measure of right. distress. And out of 46 counties, that's... That's not great. Right. Right. So and so, you know, in thinking about that, if you're having frequent mental health distress days, you know, how are you able to work productivity? How are you able to, you know, help your kids with your homework? You know, all those basic. Especially now when school is right. virtual. Right. So many places. Right. It's very, very difficult. Has a whole family effect. Right. I mean, it always down. has, but it's just more. It's exacerbated. Yeah, that, it's exacerbated right? now. Yeah. So it's a nice segue into, you know, I'm curious about your experiences through this pandemic. Obviously, you guys had to change what you were doing to a good extent, but I'm curious if you've seen any, I don't know, trends or likewise among your patients. What, what, are, what are they going through and how are you guys trying to adapt to help them out? So many of them are just really isolated, mm -hmm. like people across the world. Right. I'm used to saying country, world. Right. Um, they are working from home. They're mm -hmm. doing school from home. They're doing a lot of their appointments virtually. Mm -hmm. it, it's rough. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody at this point is pretty familiar with the rise of depression and anxiety during the pandemic, in addition to other important problems like you know, intimate partner violence and child abuse. Right. And it's rough. Right. It's rough. And then people are also really angry. Mm -hmm. A lot of my patients, whatever kind of side of the aisle they're on, 
they're when angry it comes at to vaccination and and the sort of politics of it they're mm-hmm. really angry mm-hmm. um, and anger does not do very good things for our mental health not when it's chronic <laughs> right and it doesn't do great things for your physical health right you know there's all the cortisol and stress and blood pressure and all those things right right and all kind of cascades Mm-hmm. So have you learned anything through this experience that has helped maybe adapt your model or change how you practice that you think you're going to carry forward? You know, we tried telehealth mm-hmm. like everybody else did. It didn't work very well for us. Why was that? I think that people want to go and see their doctor face to face, especially for behavioral health. Right. You know, I offered in you know, the early COVID times, we pretty much shut down with everybody and didn't have in-person appointments there for a bit. And literally, I had one patient that I saw via telehealth. Wow. I had some other patients who were willing to do it, but they just couldn't get it set up. Mm. They either did not have the technology or they weren't technologically savvy enough Mm -hmm. to make it work and it was sort of a bust Mm -hmm. for for our patients it worked a little bit better on the medical side Mm -hmm. than it did the behavioral health side Um, and then as soon as we allowed patients to come back they expressed a very clear preference for that in person yeah do you think that caused problems as far as putting off of care especially behavioral mental health care yeah, and the interruption caused mm. a lot of people to just drop out. I just never saw them again. Wow. Okay. Couldn't get a hold of them. Um, once you break the momentum in therapy, it can be hard. It's hard you to know, get going again. It can be really hard to talk yourself into going in the first place. Right. And then you experience what we all experienced. And I think a lot of them, their depression probably worsened given the level of isolation and fear and and job Stress. loss and everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some of them never made it back in, hmm. which I hated. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. But there's only so much you can do to bring them back, right? Yeah. And that's a little surprising because you'll hear a lot about telehealth, especially within behavioral health, as mm-hmm. a good modality that maybe it would reduce stigma, maybe folks are more willing to do it from the comfort of their own home. But it sounds like you guys had an opposite experience. Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't want to speak negatively broadly about telehealth services, no, course, yeah. Um, but yeah, it wasn't very effective for us. Mm-hmm. The, you know, since the beginning, there have been a few other people who I've treated via telehealth and I don't know, maybe I'm just old school, right. but it would be like you know, right in the moment that I was using some heavy challenge or the patient was sort of like finally getting to this sort of place of processing something really emotional, Mm -hmm. they would get a phone call Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it would drop out. And I was like, yeah, it just completely interrupted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So even when it's working really well, those things happen. I that is not as big of a deal when you're treating somebody's insomnia. Right. You know? Right. I mean, you can go pretty seamlessly from a recommendation about stimulus control for right. sleep and be interrupted and go back. But right. 
of your processing trauma or yeah. that kind of thing. It, That's a little bit harder. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand that. But I have a lot of colleagues who work in other places and have used, you know, primarily or even solely telehealth since this started and mm-hmm. it works. But I think you have to be pretty specific to your patient population. Sure. One thing that we did, which is a really small change, but I think did have an impact because when we did open back up, people wanted to come back in, but because we're embedded in a medical practice, they were nervous to come back in. They didn't want to be exposed to COVID. Right, which makes sense, right? Right. Right. So we started using a side door. Hmm. So we have now our own behavioral health entrance to the building. So you skip that lobby medical waiting room, right? Right. And it's probably more psychological than anything else. Right. But it helps with some of that anxiety. They don't feel quite as nervous to come in. Right. And, and any barrier you can take down is a good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a little bit jankety. You know, they have to come and then knock on the door because it's locked. It's not a patient entrance. Right. And, right. But we're small enough that we just make it work. Right. Um, we're going to be moving into a new building. And in this new building, we have created a real behavioral health <laughs> entrance. They can actually enter on their own, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and it's you know a true patient entrance. So that is something that we're going to carry over long term, right. which I think will be really cool. That is cool. Yeah. So I'm curious where, you know, wave your magic wand and infinite funding and resources. Where would you like to see this evolve to? What, you know... Where, where do you see this going over the next five years or so? And how'd you like to shape that? Well, initially, I would like to see it embedded into our rural practices. Of course, I am, um, I'll be very direct that my focus is the residency program. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my primary yeah. um, goal. That's your job. That's my that's job. That's what you're supposed to do. Right? right. Yeah. And that's what I'm passionate about. Sure. And so... I want to have this kind of dual sort of goal where I'm able to develop something that's really taking care of patients and really training residents. Right. And so, of course, my in my head, the next step is to replicate this in our two rural residency mm-hmm. um, centers. And I see that as an avenue to expanding to other primary care practices within McLeod. Okay. And I think that that will be a lot easier if we're able to duplicate these this model mm-hmm. in those two practices because while in Florence, the Family Medicine Center is, you know, it's the residency center right the two rural centers are outpatient primary care practices that we then put residents into right so it's a little bit different focus yeah yeah it's just delivering care while they get trained alongside of it right and the challenges are different and um so i think that if we can show that this works really well in those two places Mm -hmm. that's going to be really convincing to you know upper administration and people who really value the idea of integrated behavioral health right will see that it's doable on a practical level right and that's a key part of that yeah and obviously a large part of that will be doing that impact assessment 
not just on patient care and outcomes, but mm-hmm. is it financially feasible to continue to do it, right? Right. Right. Um, so always like to hear a good success story. Tell me about a good, like if, if you had an elevator ride with somebody to convince them that this is worthwhile, what patient story would you tell them? Okay. So one of the stories that I like to tell about um, is a young woman who I got to see several months back, um, maybe six months ago. She presented to the emergency department having pretty florid psychosis. She was Mm. having some vivid visual and auditory hallucinations Mm. and was, I mean, you know, in a panic. Sure. And as well as her family. She is about 24, 25, had a one and a half year old son and had recently moved to Florence and was living with some family and didn't even have a place of her own, her and her husband. Um, Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, and the reason I like to tell about this story is because at first glance, you might say, "Uh, is collaborative care really set up for a person with this severity level? Right. Um, And sometimes the answer to that is no, Right. but not always. So we ended up working with her in the ED. She was prescribed Paxil and Abilify, and that did start to help pretty quickly with reducing the hallucinations. Mm -hmm. But I was able to get more background information to work towards a diagnosis for her because it was pretty clear that she did not have schizophrenia or something like that. Um, She did have PTSD, which I think was part of the etiology for that. She had also had an episode of postpartum psychosis right after she had her son. And then this was like the second time it had presented. And she was using marijuana on an almost daily basis and had a family history of psychosis. Which those those don't go well together. They do not go well together. But she had no idea. No idea. I mean, she was very receptive to quitting when she she got some good information on that but she wouldn't have known otherwise right the cool thing about this was you know she got started on some pretty heavy hitting medications in the ed but then Mm -hmm. no real connection after that and so she could have ongoing treatment and care yeah and it would have been easy for her to just kind of sit on those meds at you know that dose for who knows how long Mm -hmm. um but because we had all of these different components to our program, I was able to speak with our psychiatrist and her physician and make changes, which she was very happy about because, you know, a couple of months into taking Paxil, she had gained 20 pounds and yeah. was really not pumped about that. Right. Ready to move on to the next <laughs> right, thing, right? Right. Right. So we were able to get her off of that. We were able to increase the Abilify. Mm-hmm. We were able to start her on medication to help with her very vivid nightmares mm-hmm. that were leading to chronic insomnia. Right. I was able to work with her on you know, different strategies to improve her sleep. She started sleeping. That made a world of difference. Well, of course, right. Um, gave her education to help her stop using marijuana, which she did really quickly. Mm-hmm helped her develop some assertiveness skills in boundary setting so that she could address some problematic things in her relationships. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 
So it's a she multifaceted approach, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you. She went from, you know, a quickly decompensating mental state mm-hmm. to totally fine, you know, really, really quickly, because we were so quickly able to engage her in this team-based wraparound kind of model of care. Often we talk about the challenges around healthcare delivery, especially rural areas. Uh, but I always like to ask our guests, what do you see good about rural, especially rural South Carolina? What are, what's good about going on that out there? Yeah, you know, it's easy to talk about problems with access to care and all these different things. But one thing that rural communities really have going for them is their level of just connectivity. Mm-hmm. I was talking with one of our third year residents who is embedded into the Clarendon practice. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really cool because she's from there. Oh, wow. Her family is there. Um, so she's a true part of the community that she's working in, which is, you know, like our ideal Absolutely. <laughs> for that yeah. track. Yeah. But she was joking around and telling me about how every time she looks out into the waiting room, everybody has like clustered together and they're catching up because they all know each other. Right, right. So they go to the doctor and they get their medical care and they get to catch up with people and have this sense of social support. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen that happen in my doctor's office. Or, right, or in know, Florence, right? Right, in Florence yeah. or places like that. Then they go back and they apologize for not social distancing. And, it's like, mine is too late. Right? Yeah. Um, but there's something that I think is really special about that. Um, and while it certainly can and does happen in the most you know urban communities, I think that sometimes it's easier to get a sense of like my doctor mm. in your s- smaller town right. medical practice. Yeah, it's more ownership, I guess. Yeah. 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 That is interesting. And sort of in not just an individual level of trust and rapport, but sort of a community level of trust. Right. Because most people in the community know Dr. So-and-so because of the nature of a smaller area. Right, right. And so I think that can be a very, very cool thing. Mm-hmm. It's harder to see in mm-hmm. areas that aren't rural. Absolutely. It's very anonymous in urban centers. Yeah. Right. So I always like to ask folks how you would define rural in general. How do you know you're in a rural place and how would you describe it to somebody? What a question. <laughs> um, You know, I think it's really easy to just think about the size and the numbers Mm -hmm. when it comes to a rural setting. I think more about what we just talked about, that level of connectivity and that um, relational experience. I don't know if I could give a definition on something that even our governmental agencies can't agree on. Yeah, don't get me started on that. (laughs) Go back to listen to the very first episode. We talk about that. But, you know, being, having my career set into this family medicine environment, I have come to see so much value in the sort of philosophy of family medicine Hmm. and how that applies to a rural setting. Mm Mm-hmm. Because 
they practice such a full scope of medicine and they work with patients across the whole lifespan. Right, right. And that's really unique Mm -hmm. in medicine. And it's what somebody, a physician who is embedded into a rural community needs to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And that's the mission of our rural track is to train physicians who are uniquely um, set up to practice this level of care. That longitudinal care. Yeah. And know when they need to connect somebody to, you know, some specialty center. But to feel like they can do most of the things for most of their patients and really establish themselves as part of the community. Well, thank you, Dr. Rainwater, for this. This has been very informative and hopefully our listeners have learned a lot about behavioral care and how to how we could possibly do it better and we'll look forward to working with you in the future on developing some of these models it could be could be interesting work coming up in the coming years with us yeah i hope so so if you want more information on things we've talked about today or dr rainwater or her work please uh, check out our show notes to the podcast and stay tuned for more episodes coming out soon Uh, If you've liked what you've heard, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And if you have ideas for guests that you'd like to hear on our program, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Growing Rural Podcast. If you found the content valuable, please leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify so others can find us. For more information, please visit our website at sc.edu forward slash rural healthcare or follow us on Twitter at SC underscore CRPH. This was recorded at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia. It is edited and produced by Sean Riffle. Y'all take care.